This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History. Uh, my name is Madame Lehem Eriksen, and I'm an Associate Professor of Archaeology at the University of Leicester. My research expertise is in Iron and Viking Age households, architecture, and body politics. Today, we're speaking with Michelle Hare-Smith about her new book, The Valkyrie's Loom, The Archaeology of Clot Production and Female Power in the North Atlantic, published by the University Press of Florida in 2020. Michelle Hare-Smith is currently a researcher at the Hafenreffer Museum of Anthropology at Brown University. Her research interests include gender, textiles, and the material culture of dress and adornment. She has won several grants and awards to research textile production in the North Atlantic. And her research combines historical documents, archaeological textiles, and isotopic analyses to understand the role that women played in North Atlantic trade and societies. Michelle, I really enjoyed reading your book. And why don't you start by telling us a bit more about the association among women and textile production in the Viking and medieval worlds? You've titled your book, The Valkyrie's Loom. Why is that? So, well, thank you very much. First of all, I wanted to thank, uh, thank you for interviewing me today and also thank uh, Jennifer Davis from the University of Oklahoma for having invited me to present my book. Um, so back to the question that you ask. Um, so I'm going to go about this in sort of a, a long way. Um, immediate answer to the question, why did I title it this way? Um, and then I'm going to sort of backtrack and go into a story of how I came to actually working on these textiles. But, um, and I'll get back again to your title at the end. But I found that through my research, when I started it and, and over the course of time, I found that actually the acts of textile production was surrounded by, it seemed to be surrounded by concepts of fear, power, and respect. Um, I also noted that there were never any men weaving. Um, and the fear and the power and whatnot seemed to be connected, uh, where in fact it was respect shown by men towards women. And this in turn also uh, led me to look into other aspects. And I found that there were also some heavy mythological associations connected with women weaving um, that was potentially connected also to some fairly powerful female goddesses like Freya, for example. That's the short answer. <laughs> so now the long answer. Um, I just wanted to talk also a little bit about how I got into this whole story of textiles and also the questions of male perspectives versus female perspectives and how it all came to be and how I ended up actually sort of digging into this stuff as well. What I got, the first grant I had, and I've had three successive grants that dealt with textiles now over a period of three years. These were funded by the National Science Foundation, um, Arctic Social Sciences. And the first grant that I had was actually to look at uh, textiles in Iceland. 
And when I started looking into it, I realized that there were these massive collections, but actually that the way they had been looked at, in fact, they hadn't been studied at all, uh, not in any sort of significant way, um, but they had been worked on by a historian called Helgi Thorlikson and who did his PhD thesis in 1991 actually on uh, on Vavmal, which is the cloth currency. And it was done. He's a historian, so he used, obviously, historic sources. Who, wrote the, who writes the historic sources? It is men. It was a man looking at male sources. There was a textile specialist uh, um, who... Um, Elsa Gudjonsson, and she had she was actually the textile specialist in Iceland, and she had looked a little bit at the archaeological material, but not in any sort of comprehensive way, and was more interested in um, in in sort of medieval tapestries and church fineries and so on. So she hadn't gotten in to the the, the actual nitty gritty of these archaeological collections, which I have to say are really not very attractive. And I like to call them like the dirty brown rags because that's what they basically are. So um, I think that there was a bit of a reluctance of people to sort of tackle these collections in part because, you know, textile work has often been done in, in archaeology, is done by specialists who are often conservators as well in a very sort of rigorous and thorough way. Um, I think, quite frankly, the whole thing was a little bit daunting to people. Um, the other thing, too, is that the archaeology in the North Atlantic has been dominated by men as well. So there's no, there's been really not a lot of discussion. I mean, this is changing now, but for a long time when I started, there was really not a lot of interest placed in women in the other half of the population and how they had actually contributed to the settlement or, or um, survival in the North Atlantic. Um, and so I thought to myself, you know, I was interested in looking for women, finding women archaeologically. So I thought, well, you know, what better way to look at women than to look at the products that they made? And as it turned out, yes, textile production was an exclusively female affair, and it's only women that wove. So if you want to find women and you want to have their rea- their responses or you want to see what they're doing, what better way than to look at the products that they actually made? So this was kind of, you know, a different approach. I was sort of getting at it. And um, I then started to to dig more into this and looking at also into the symbolic uh, sort of meaning of the textiles. And I have to say that I was also heavily inspired by the work of Annette Na- uh, Weiner and um, Schneider, who wrote actually a very famous book in anthropology, Cloth and the Human Experience, going really into the sort of like the the deeper significance of what these textiles actually meant. And because I also used a lot of different sources, I didn't only use textiles, and I w- I'm interested in I'm interested in the textiles themselves, but I'm really interested in what the textiles can tell us about society. I used, I, you know, I went into the the saga sources as well, quite extensively, and realized that there were actually associations between women, childbirth, death, fate, and even the control of fate. And if we start looking at, you know, even the mythology, we see that there's three Norns that are female that are standing under the world tree, potentially controlling the fates of men possibly by spinning. <laughs> so textile work. And I found that even, you know, digging further, that the act of spinning itself was connected with this form of female magic called Sedir. And, you know, looking not only in the saga sources, but looking also at the spinning and weaving tools, you find a lot of spells, curses. Uh, in Lux de la Saga, you have people killing people through the act of spinning, 
um, again, death, again, uh, the Savior staffs, or I won't say Savior, yeah, well, the Savior staffs that Neil Price, for example, who has worked extensively on the burials and whatnot, has talked a lot about ways of identing, identifying the burials of these female practitioners, the Savior, uh, the Volvas, was by the fact that they had stabs in their burials. And in his book, The Viking Way, he went into great elaboration about the, the way these stabs are, the fact they had baskets and so on. And what those basically are, distaffs. Anybody who's got any experience with spinning knows that these are distaffs, except they're iron. So obviously they're not functional, they're more symbolic. And an actual distaff would probably be of wood because trying to hold up a huge iron thing with your wool in it and trying to spin isn't so easy. So again, more associations. And so it's sort of, you know, um, it, it, you know, and this is actually not unique to the Norse context. I mean, this is a con something that you find in other cultural contexts, um, that in fact, textiles seem to be almost like a, a form of, of a second skin, a second barrier. And here I'm, I'm referring actually to Terence Turner, who actually used the term second skin, who saw, in fact, the, the, the human body as a sort of the biological sort of entity, and that the clothing and the textiles that you put on top of it are the social skin. So here you can, again, see analogies between birth, between the creation of a human being, um, and, uh, you know, stories of, of textiles actually containing the life essence of people. So I started to see that actually there was a lot more going on here. And this might actually be one of the reasons why men actually didn't engage in textile production. So, um, when I, I, so coming back to now the title of the Valkyrie's Loom, and I wanted to actually just read, uh, basically the poem where it, where I took this, this idea from, which kind of summarizes it in a sort of a, you know, it's part of this whole, it's sort of a, a mythological corpus, I think, that surrounds, in fact, weaving and textile work. And this comes from Njal's saga, um, and it's called the Daradarlioth. And it was written, um, the story talks about a man called Doruth, who looks up to the sky and he sees 12 Valkyries riding down on their horses. They come to his farm, and they go into a dinya, which is the weaving hut, which was also another very gendered space used by women. And he looks in the window, and what he sees is he sees these 12 Valkyries setting up a warp-weighted loom, which is the loom that they used in the North Atlantic for 800 years, which was an upright loom. And he's describing, um, the poem basically describes what they are doing, and they're weaving this piece of cloth where the cloth itself is made with the entrails of men and the loom weights at the bottom of the warp yarns are human heads. All of their weaving tools are weapons because they're Valkyrie. So again, here we have a Desir, like these mythological beings who are somehow involved in the control of fate, in the creation of something uh, in a form of magic as well, which ends up resulting in a terrible thing because they lose the Battle of Clontarf as a result of it. So I'm just going to read this little passage. Blood rains from the cloudy web on the broad loom of slaughter. The web of man, gray as armor, is now being woven. The Valkyries will cross it with a crimson weft. The warp is made of human entrails and human heads are used as weights. The heddle rods are blood-wet spears. The shafts are iron-bound. And the arrows are shuttled. With swords, we will weave this web of battle. So you can see again these, it's a very powerful poem. So I thought, you know, at some level, what is going on here? The fact that, you know, in Iceland, for example, where cloth becomes money and 
men don't make the money. They don't weave it. It's women who are weaving. Why aren't they weaving? Why aren't they getting involved in this? Because they were scared because there were associations of men being involved in, in textile work. Um, and I think it's because of the, also men being involved in Seder might mean that they might be coined as homosexual or having ergi, which was this, you know, this, this sort of strange sort of uh, term used to d- describe uh, potentially, you know, a non-masculine state, which was terrifying. Um, and I thought, you know, this is probably what is going on is, and in fact, in the Viking age, you had these belief systems where no men, men, we don't do that kind of thing. We don't do that th- kind of thing because that then we're more like women or we might be associated with say that or, or whatever. Um, but when it comes to the middle ages where they actually continue not to weave they demolish the weaving huts. They're making money. They're still not weaving. And I, what I think is that many cultures, sometimes they might forget the stories, but the attitudes prevail. And I think this attitude prevailed in the North Atlantic for about 800 years. So that's the basis of, of the title. It's a long, I know it's a very long, elaborate explanation, but that's basically, you know, that's basically what happened, what, what, was go- what I think is going on and why I thought, you know, it's important to use something that really kind of uh, tells you what's behind all this, you know, ultimately this textile production. Mm. Uh, it's a very rich and evocative material, isn't it? It is very much so, um, <laughs> definitely. I thought we should just clarify for listeners who aren't Viking specialists that mm-hmm. Seider that was mentioned here and these Seider staffs or potentially distaffs uh, are ritual props and Seider is seen as a a form of, of magic, uh, very clearly associated with women, as Michelle was was saying, and seen as kind of emasculating for men to do. I will just mm-hmm. add, though, that even though these are the prevailing attitudes, there's always that paradox that the, the uh, foremost Saider practitioner is Odin, the king of gods. Absolutely, absolutely. So but I believe he learned it from Freya, though, didn't he? He learned it from Freya, yeah, but there is yeah. a there is a kind of a there. Are, I, I believe we're in a society with quite strict binary gender roles, but there's yeah, also absolutely. but there's also play. Um, yeah, and inversion. And I, I would add to that as well, actually, because you, it's true that you do actually in the world of the living, there's very strict binary rules of gender. However, I think the mythical world, which is the case in many cultural contexts. In the mythical world, things are turned on their heads, so people can be what they want, you know, in a way. So you you may have uh, the ultimate masculine god, you know, doing something that is potentially emasculating because he's a god, so he can be both male and female. It's okay. This is also very common in shamanism and and circumpolar shamanism um, among the Inuit as well. You find the same kind of situation. So um, anyway, yeah. Sorry. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, no, uh, absolutely. And that's part of Neil Price's argument too, isn't it? Right, that also, definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely. Religious system. Um, and another just quick aside before we move on, but I also just find it really interesting that you find so little interest in gender perspectives in the North Atlantic uh, archaeology when the Scandinavian archaeology was very early on with critical feminist approaches. Absolutely, um, yes, yes. From scholars like uh, Helga Domasnes, uh, Elisabeth Arvind Norblad, yes. also Judith Jesh. So it's interesting course, yeah. that those perspectives yeah. are maybe not uh, permeated th- as much in, in North Atlantic. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's also because a lot of the archaeology in the North Atlantic started out 
uh, I mean, it started out early on, um, but what has happened, I would say probably since the seventies or eighties is that it was pretty much, uh, taken over, not taken over, but there was a huge American influx into there, um, of people out of, uh, CUNY, uh, city university, New York, uh, notably Thomas McGovern and his crowd and his, his, basically his, his group, who were really much more interested in environmental archaeology and processional archaeology as well. And they did the bulk of the work actually in Iceland and Greenland. And so most of the focus has ended up being zooarchaeological work um, and, and much more interested in, in issues of, for example, of um, you know, leadership, subsistence, uh, farming practices, et cetera, with little attention paid to women at all. I, I think that's what happened, you know, and, and that has continued, that's continued to grow, though now it's things are, sh- are changing and are shifting. So I think that's, it kind of went a slightly different course than you had in Scandinavia. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and so when I was reading your book, I was particularly interested uh, or fascinated by what you now in your introduction called dirty brown rags. But so this <laughs> huge Icelandic textile corpus uh, consisting of thousands of fragments and mainly found in middens, as I understand you. So as yes, yeah. part of household discard or wastes. I was wondering what kind of stories can you tell us from the, from that kind of, of data? Right. So, well, definitely a huge corpus. Uh, I'm always tell the Icelanders, you know, it, it's like there's certain place on earth where you have this ma- these massive sort of textile collections or these textile uh, societies, uh, textile producing societies, um, where the preservation is also happens to be great, like, for example, Peru, uh, Egypt, um, and Iceland is one of those places as well. Uh, because of the permafrost, because of the, the way the conditions, the way the textiles were discarded. So um, I would say very conservatively, there's between 8,000 to 10,000 fragments. And when I think about it, there's probably actually more, way more than that. Um, some sites have close to 3,000 textiles alone, you know. So, um, and these tend to increase actually as you move up in time. So um, I've, at the moment, I've looked at 36 sites with textiles. Um, and it's a, it's a very painstaking job because what you're looking at is pretty much a repeat of the same thing over and over again, but you know, it's the data that you pull together and then you look for patterns in the data, then the stories start to come out. So it's actually kind of interesting. One thing I did do, um, is that the time frame that I chose was also very, very wide. So Viking age to the 19th century, early 1800s is where I stopped. So you might say, well, why, like, why such a huge sort of time frame? And the reason is, is that when it comes to dress, when it comes to textiles, in non-industrial contexts, these move and change very, very slowly. So the changes are in increments of three to 400 years at a time kind of thing. It's not like fashion today or textiles where we're just producing like constantly, constantly. It, it changes very slowly. So if you want to see something happen, or if you want to start noting social processes happening on happening and going on, you need to really look at a large um, time frame going on. And I could say that every time the textiles changed in the North Atlantic, it's because something happened socially or environmentally that impacted and provoked this change. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of an interesting thing to look at. So, you know, um, obviously, like, for example, in Greenland, uh, they start out with a textile tradition, which is really similar to Iceland. Um, with the onset of the Little Ice Age in roughly the 1300s, there was a response that was reflected through textile production, which I'm not the first one to have noted this. Um, 
this was noted before me and, and called Greenlandic Vodmal, um, and where actually the women deliberately start adding more weft yarns into their cloth because they're trying to make a cloth that is more dense and more thick because they're trying to deal with climate change. So while men might be fussing about farming, uh, the women are trying to figure out how to deal with their cloth, you know? And so this is, this is why I think this, this dialogue needs to happen with both male and female, because obviously people are working together and finding solutions for these problems, you know? So to look only at one and not the other isn't right. Um, another thing I'd say is that in terms of stories, what's been really interesting too, is that in Iceland, for instance, there's a real change in textiles. Like the textiles, you could almost use textile production over this thousand year period as a dating method because there are such clear markers when periods change of how the textiles change. So if you look at the Viking Age material in Iceland, elsewhere as well, actually in Scotland as well, I would say the same thing. You find that they have a lot of diverse weaves. They have a lot of color. There's a lot of stuff going on. You know, there's, there's, interesting, really interesting textiles when they preserve. The minute that Icelanders convert to Christianity, they change completely. It's like we go down to two weave types, twills and tabbies. You do have the odd occasional other weave that comes in, but that is the dominant thing going on. So the minute you see that, you think, okay, this isn't Viking age anymore. Now we're, we're in the medieval period. Within the medieval period itself, there's also shifts that happen. I think probably in due part to trade, um, around 1300, the Icelanders start exporting a lot of textiles uh, towards um, Central Europe and Northern Europe. Um, generally, what they'll tell you in Iceland is that they stopped producing textiles in 1300 because fish became the important trade commodity. My experience is actually textiles continued constantly right up to 1700, roughly, until the Danish trade monopoly, and that real trade to Europe in textiles picks up in about. 1200, 1300. Um, but you find a difference that in the later medieval period, in the early medieval period, when they wove on the warp-weighted warp loom, the kind of sheep they had was called the northern short tail, which is a dual-coated sheep. So it's got a very coarse outer coat and a very fluffy undercoat. And in the Viking Age, in the early medieval period in Iceland, the women would separate these fibers and use the outer coat, which is called the tog, would use it as warp yarns to be suspended on loom weights. And they would use the wefts, um, they would use the fluffy inner coat because it tends to felt as well. So it creates a textile that is, you know, has great uh, sort of resistance or, or protection from the, the cold. By the time you hit 1400, so the later medieval period, they stopped doing this completely. So then it becomes basically what you can buy today in Iceland, which is called lopi, which is basically the two fibers mixed together. They stopped doing this. They also... Uh, try to, they start fulling textile. So I'm going to explain the term fulling, which is a form of surface uh, felting, if you want. So the, the textiles look like a, more like a, a loden, if you're, if you know about that Austrian cloth, that's very sort of has a, a nice finish. So it's more, there's more of a finishing, there's no finishing going on in the earlier part. So when you see these technical details, you can say, okay, this roughly dates to this period, and this is going on here. When the Danish trade monopoly is imposed in 1603, we have another change happening. All of a sudden, textiles become more industrialized. Because one thing, also in Iceland, textiles are not a specialized industry as they are in Europe. In the sense, they are not organized in guilds. There are no centralized workshops. For 800 years, all textile production in the North Atlantic is a cottage-based industry, meaning that every single farm is producing its own textiles. 
And at the same time, it's also being used as a form of money, which means that every single farm is producing its own currency. It only becomes organized the way it is in Europe when the Danish trade monopoly starts, roughly. So then you have a whole different thing. You also have a lot of imports happening at that point. So there's a lot of stories, actually, that you can tell just by looking at these you know, at looking one at the time frame and looking at these huge collections of plotting them and, and, you know, um, looking for the patterns. And obviously one of the obvious patterns was the question of currency, uh, which was the big one that came out of the study pretty much, I'd say for Iceland. Uh, going back to that earlier period, uh, another aspect I found fascinating was by looking at the technology in this Icelandic corpus, uh, you could connect the, the spinning technology uh, potentially with uh, cultural or ethnic groups uh, from the British Isles. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Okay. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm going to uh, get a little bit more technical here, and I will try to explain each of these terms and, you know, for, for the audience also so they understand what we're talking about. Um, so what I used for that was actually... I do obviously a lot when I analyze the textiles, I do a lot of microscopic work and, you know, I look at, at how the textiles are actually, stru you know, structured internally and so on. And obviously one of the important things is spin direction. It's made with spun yarns. When you spin a yarn, you have the option to spin towards the right, which will give you what we call Z spun yarns, or you can turn towards the left and you get S spun yarns. And what I noted in the data was that in the Viking Age, in the burials, most of the textiles are spun Z in the warp. So those are the vertical ones and Z in the weft. Uh, uh, yeah, Z in the weft, Z in the warp. So we, we would say those are Z to Z spun textiles. In the medieval period, you don't see that anymore. Suddenly you see Z spun warps and S spun, S spun wefts. So they've shifted, they've changed one of the spin directions. And these are, these are things that tend, when I say that things don't change very quickly, these are the sorts of things um, that I'm talking about is that, you know, things are very, very slow um, in changing. So they, they tend to last for long periods of time. When I looked into the literature, I realized actually that in the British Isles, it was the same thing. In the Viking settlements, um, and these two textile specialists, Lisa Bender-Jorgensen, Penelope Walton-Rogers, um, had both noted actually that the textiles in the Viking settlements in the burial context were very different from what they were finding in the rest of the British Isles. So the textiles in those contexts were also Z to Z, yet in the settlements outside, they were Z to S. So I started looking around also the rest of Europe. The rest of Europe, it was mostly Z to S spun. I noted that Norway was Z to Z spun, as was the island of Gotland, but Sweden and Denmark were Z to S. So I'm sort of seeing these patterns. So I went back into the literature and I actually used the work of an American archaeologist uh, called Minar, who in 2001 wrote a book or, or an article, I should say, on spin. And she was looking at the textile traditions in the southwest of the United States, where they have extensive textile you know, traditions as well. And they, she had communities, literally, uh, you know, prehistoric communities that were side by side spinning in completely different ways. So this community was spinning Z to Z and this community was spinning S to S and the other one were spinning Z to S. And she started to wonder why are there different ways of doing this? What is this about? Like what's going on here? And, you, you know, you will hear if you ask textile people that, oh, well, it's because certain fibers need to be in this direction, otherwise the textile comes undone, or certain fibers require certain, you know, spin directions, or it's because of people are right-handed or left-handed. 
And so she decided to do, to run a whole experimental trial on this and had modern spinners working and had them working with different materials, different contexts. And they all came back to the way they had learned how to spin. So she realized that actually these are cultural traditions. These are cultural traditions that are passed on from mother to daughter, from father to son, um, depending in the case of the Navajo where men also weave. Um, and, and that in fact, it, they were almost cultural markers of how they, they would do things differently from their communities, from their neighbors. So I started thinking about that in the Norse context. And I started thinking, okay, if in Norway, people are spinning Z to Z, in the Norse settlements of Scotland, they're spinning Z to Z. They're doing the same thing in um, Iceland. But in, in Iceland, you sometimes find in the Viking material, and I'm thinking about, for example, the burial of Ketlstadir, which is in the, in the book, was the case study we did. We actually had a piece of textile that was woven Z to S. We know that actually they came to Iceland. It was not only Norwegians that were involved in this, in this endeavor, but there were also people from the Hebrides, from Ireland. Uh, there's people from other parts of Europe, from Sweden as well. Um, seeing that textile production was in the hands of women, if they brought in female slaves, female concubines, and they were working in this context, is it possible that they actually brought with them a different spinning tradition? And that what you've got is you've actually got two spinning traditions coming together. And eventually what happens by the uh, early medieval period, they give up completely on the Z to Z, where... I would also think that it might be possible that in the burial context, they may be trying to state their affiliation towards their Norwegian roots, not only in, in terms of the jewelry, but maybe also in how the textiles were made. But by the medieval period where it becomes currency, we're down to Z to S. And they've, so in, in a sense, I see this as kind of potentially a reflection of the migration situation because the material culture in the burials in Iceland is very much about about this cultural amalgamation going on. It is not a homogeneous Norwegian society by a long shot, you know? And I think that that's, uh, that has been my interpretation of the situation, even though I know some people don't agree with me, but um, I, that's what I feel. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I am Jennifer Davis, co-editor of the Journal of Women's History. Unfortunately, in this moment of the interview, Marianne's audio dropped out. In post-production, I re-recorded her questions. Here they are. Michelle, another fascinating undercurrent of textile production in this area is the role played by thralls or enslaved people. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you learned from your research on this point? Well, you know, obviously there, there is no, there's no concrete evidence about this, but I mean, just looking at the data, it seems that I'm sure that it's clear slaves were involved in the production of of making, you know, of make of helping in 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 making of textiles, not only in terms of the of the spin direction that we've talked about that they may have actually introduced different um, you know, textile traditions, but also um, you know, the time involved in in making textiles. And um in my book in chapter 4, I did 
actually look at the work of Eva Anderson Strand and also of uh, Lisa Bender Jorgensen. And also combine this with some of the work that Tom McGovern had done on the ratios of sheep to goat and looking at the wool needs per farm. He was really interested in how much wool does each farm need and how, how would that impact actually, um, um, you know, breeding and so on and, and animal husbandry and so on. Um, and I started, I wanted to figure out, okay, well, how long, cause I, I weave as well. I weave on, on the warp weighted loom and I, I wanted to figure out like, how long does this really take? Cause it's very slow and very time consuming, I have to say. And there's not only the weaving, there's also the spinning, uh, then there's the weaving and then there's the making of the garments. And so I, um, did, I sort of combined all of their work together to figure out how much would using his models of farms, cause he had models of farms, you know, like for four people or, a farm with 20 people and he had different sort of uh, models and the time involved was so intense. Um, For one woman, it would take her about 260 days of labor to spin and weave the wool required to, to clothe a family of four. That's if she was spinning and weaving eight hours a day, every day. How does she do anything else? You know, and the bigger the farm, the more people to clothe, the more women involved. So it's clear that everybody was spinning. Well, every female was probably spinning. I spent some of my my childhood in South America and Peru. Um, and, you know, I remember walking in the Andes and seeing women spinning constantly. Like they were tending their llamas in the Andes spinning. They were at the market spinning. They span, 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 uh, or spun, spun, spun. <laughs> every day, nonstop. And I thought to myself, you know, this was an ongoing activity. So obviously, if you have anything, either concubines, slaves in the Viking age, maybe even, you know, farmhands, tenant farmers, any able-bodied female, in my opinion, was probably spinning and weaving. I mean, it's the only way to be able to uh, cater to your needs. And also recycling clothing considerably. And there's a huge amount of recycling of cloth going on. Uh, which is also a very, very important strategy, which was not actually suggested in McGovern's uh, evaluation of of wool needs, is that, you know, not everybody needs a sale and not everybody needs a blanket every year because you're going to patch up and reuse things over and over again, you know. So that's a very important aspect. Too. Okay. From our contemporary perspective, textile production is often seen as something of less economic importance, a familiar, perhaps even trivial, domestic activity associated with women. However, when we get into the medieval period proper, both in Iceland as in Norway, cloth production and cloth in general was of such importance that cloth was an economic currency. What can you tell us in general about the economic importance of textile production, and especially about this concept of valmal? Valthmal, yeah. So you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's really, and I have to specify here that Valthmal is really found used as currency in Norway and in Iceland. Um, in fact, um, I'm just thinking about the the law books in Norway. Um, the Gulething law um, has got provisions for textiles um, that you found you find again in Graugas, which is the medieval law book, um, and um, you know, that tell you exactly what, how much they're supposed to, what they're supposed to be. So indicating that this was something that was sort of, um, definitely was important. 
Um, now, I have to add also that Vavmal is not necessarily found, the currency, and this is really cloth currency, is not found in Greenland. There's no evidence that I could see that they were doing this. And I think it's because they just didn't have enough wool, quite frankly. Um, and it has to do a lot with, you know, again, the, the climate and what they were able to, uh, to, you know, to breed in terms of animals as well. Um, the Faroe Islands does not appear to have any Vothmal either. I know that Shetland did, though. So it's not everywhere in the North Atlantic. So Shetland, you do find in, there's not a lot of textiles that remain from Shetland, but you do find evidence in historic sources that there, it was used as a type of currency as well. So um, about the Vothmal itself, um, I, I would say that it is so fundamental um, to their economy. I mean, it was literally an explosion. And it became actually something even different from what it was in Norway. So it starts out as, you know, the, the, in, the, in the system of barter economy, if you want, that, you know, you've got everything was weighed in the Viking Age on the basis of silver, of one ounce of silver. Um, and that's the way it's written down in the law codes is one ounce of silver. But as you get into the medieval period and you start looking at some of the later law books in medieval Iceland, you find that they're not talking about one mark of silver anymore. I think because there is no more silver, quite frankly. What does Iceland have? They have less and less contact with the uh, the outside world in the medieval period. Um, it's, it does decline through time. Uh, they have a lot of wool and they have a lot of fish. So these become the dominant sort of things. And I think that what happens is that the textiles become the basic unit of measure. So the one ounce of silver now becomes two L's wide and six L's long. And that's the basic unit. So that becomes, and so in the law codes, they don't even talk about silver anymore. They're just talking about Vodmal. They're talking about that one ounce unit of Vodmal, which is two L's by six L's. Now the term Vodmal itself comes from two Norse words, Vod, which is cloth and mal to measure. So cloth made to measure. And it's funny because people will throw the term around, oh, vodmal, this is vodmal. No, vodmal is something very, very specific in Iceland. It is always a two to two twill. It is always Z to S spun, and it measures between four to 14 warp threads per centimeters. And there's, obviously there's a scale. Um, and you see actually in, in some of the later law codes in Iceland that there's even grades of vodmal that you can have. Uh, you can have, for example, a pakavadmal, which is about four warp threads per centimeter. You can have a gjaldavod, which is the currency, which is basically between nine and ten warp threads per centimeter. They have a klaidavod for clothing, which is 11 warp threads per centimeter. And then they have a smalvod, which is the stuff that you pay to the church for your taxes and tithes, which is between 11 and 14 warp threads per centimeter. So this is also, um, this is what people were using. And I mean, the sources are full of, of examples of this. It's what you use to pay your taxes. You pay your tithes with this. If you have to pay bride price, you may it'll be measured in Vathmal. It's for all your purchases. It's for everything. Now, obviously, if you don't have Vathmal, but you happen to have butter, well, then that's fine. They'll make the equivalent. And there are stipulations. So it's very, very red, regulated. Um, they'll have stipulations in the law books of how much butter you need to provide to equivalent to the one ounce unit of Vathmal, for example. Um, so when you start to read about this, um, and what I did is I started counting threads, <laughs> which is, you know, probably the, the most tedious thing of all, but counting threads and plotting them. And I was shocked because everybody had looked at this sort of from historic basis. And I started to see, well, let, let's see what that actually looks like in terms of the actual artifacts. And when I started to plot them, 
my results mirrored exactly the medieval law books. And I would get these really wonderful tight clusters in my graphs of, of the period of this medieval period. What I also found is it didn't stop in 1300. It continued until the Danish trade monopoly, basically. So they, did, they had no currency. They, they did not have a coin currency in Iceland until the Danes arrived, basically. So for 800 years, there's no currency. This is the currency. And the crazy thing, it's made by women. Women are making cash. So, you know, I, I love to say that because the Icelanders are like, wow, that's really cool. Because imagine, I mean, this is, this is a pretty heavy responsibility. And my feeling is in the law books, because you had to make the stuff to be able to really understand um, how it was made, they are probably the ones who dictated also all the legal requirements of how wide it had to be, how, you know, how, how many threads there had to be. I'm sure that women were working alongside men, probably fairly collaboratively in implementing these rules because you had to, you had to know the stuff to be able to, you know, if you've never woven before, you wouldn't be able to, to say this, you know, to be able to, to verify it. I'm sure they were probably involved in the inspection of it because they actually had sheriffs going around inspecting to make sure that the Vodmal was up to standards. And if it wasn't, you could be outlawed for it. So it's quite a serious offense. Um, the other thing that they find is that the, the L, which is a, an ancient measure, it's not only in Iceland they use the L, they use the L in England as well. Um, this is also something that fluctuates. And probably the consensus seems to be it fluctuates over time uh, in, 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 in response, I think, to trade with England or with uh, Northern Europe. So it starts out, generally they'll tell you an L is basically your forearm, so from your hands to your elbow, um, and measures about 49.2 centimeters in length. That's in Graugas. But then it changes to 55.6 Ls in, in a later source. Um, one of the later law codes says that even the actual width of the one-ounce unit changed from 2 Ls to 3.5 Ls. So 2 Ls would be about a meter wide, just to give you a, a kind of a sense, you know. Um, and this may be actually when they become more engaged in um, in in trade with with Europe and exporting of this Vadmal, um, they start to adjust. Uh, you know, sort of in the the mid mid middle and middle ages, if you want the mid to later uh, middle ages, more or less. So I always thought it was you know that this was really kind of um, an interesting idea that here you've got something that's basically holding the economy together. Um, it's currency. Um, and yet nobody had spoken about the fact that women were making it and probably controlling how it was made and, and verifying that, you know, uh, working alongside the sheriffs to make sure that people were not, you know, cheating on their Vodmal. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite important. I think it's a quite an important female contribution to, you know, the history of women in general, you know, I'd like to follow up on that. Can textile production in the past, as well as in contemporary societies, be seen as a political practice in your view? So I would say, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I was really interested, particularly during the, the Trump years, of um, women sort of reappropriating textiles and using textiles now as a way to convey messages, political messages of, you know, resistance and um, just critique of society and stuff, which actually was, I, I thought that was great. You know, it, it warmed my heart <laughs> that we, they were back to doing this, you know, yes, you need to do this. Um, I wouldn't say that in 
the Norse context in the North Atlantic that it was obviously as overtly political, but it's definitely political. I mean, it's tied with the political economy of Iceland. So yes, it's definitely political, no doubt about it. Um, and I think that in many ways, I think that making Vothmal, for example, did give women a certain upper hand, gave them a certain political power. I think that we, it's not written down anywhere. We don't see it, but we can, we can think about it. We can imagine this, that this was definitely, um, you know, the case. Um, and I think, like I said before, I think they probably did work, um, you know, they worked somewhat collaboratively. They had to, you know. Um, and, and it was not necessarily that were just shoved in a corner weaving and, and had nothing to say. I don't really think that was the case. Um, the other thing I find is that, um, another point that I, I brought up actually in, in the introduction of the book as well, is that, um, at some level textile may have been a form, a, a distinct form of female expression as well. We know that, uh, etymologically, there's a connection between the term textile the word text, as in, you know, the text, a writing, and the Latin verb texto, which means to weave. So there's clearly a connection there. And I think in, in, in Norse society, there was a huge, as we know, there was a huge emphasis on the spoken word and male verbal expression. We know through the skaldic poetry, you know, that the, and the ability to control and perform that was held in high esteem by men, that men should, you know, be able to do that. Um, not so, well, not so much for women, although I, I hear that, you know, there's been work also done on female scalds as well, but I think that for women at some level, textile production was possibly their, their mode of expression is a way. And this is definitely true. If you think about it through tapestry or embroidery, and you think about, for example, these stories of these huge tapestries in the sagas that go around the whole hall that recount the stories of people's families. And people's adventures and people's narratives, the Bayeux Tapestry, the Osberg Tapestry, these are narratives that are told by women. They can tell what they want on these narratives. So in a society where they may have less overt, uh, a less overt public role in speaking, they wove, you know, or they, and, and this was a way to express themselves so in a way men spoke and women wove, right? And I think that, um, when I look at, again, back to the dirty old rags again, <laughs> obviously this is a lot less glamorous, but at some level, if you think about, about Vothmal or you think about the cloth in Greenland, that's a mode of expression as well, in a sense. It's a way of expressing, you know, um, particularly in Greenland, for example, if you're adjusting your cloth, you're changing the way it's woven internally, you, you, it's, it's female expression, it's female um, involvement in, in a whole process of adaptation, of survival, but also of expression as well. So from that perspective, yes, I would say that it, it's definitely political, definitely. Another new field that your research opens up alongside a wider interest in wool production in European prehistory is this emergent discourse on human-animal relationships. What new insights about the relationship among humans and animals does your research indicate? I think, you know, I, I think obviously they did. And um, this might be an area actually where there's overlap between male-female activities and involvement. I know coming back to the zooarchaeological work that was done, for example, in Greenland, um, they, well, actually they did, comparisons between uh, animal husbandry in within Greenland and also within Iceland and comparing. And this is one of the things that triggered me to do those studies to figure out how much time it actually took for women to weave and spin 
was in part because of this work. So I started out with that. And what they find is that obviously when they come to Iceland and Greenland, they are bringing the usual range of European domesticates of I'm only going to mention the obvious ones right now because this is what we're talking about. But basically, you know, cows, uh, goats, sheep, pigs, and so on. Um, And with cattle also being obviously the high status animal in in both locations. What they found in Iceland is that the production of sheep um, seems to increase with time. And the production of goat decreases. So we can obviously say why they're making money with it. So they need wool, (laughs) you know, obviously this is a deliberate, you know, we need more wool in Greenland. What happened, same kind of situation, except they, the cattle seems to be mostly located on the elite farms. Um, I'm thinking in particular, the bishopric, um, at Gardar in, in, uh, in Greenland where they had an insane amount of cattle, like a disproportionate amount of cattle for a population that was basically almost starving to death. Um, which has been used also as an argument for the decline of the Greenland Norse colony. But um, in terms of the other domesticates, as with the Little Ice Age happening slowly over time and starting sort of at the end of 1200s, they, you start to see, um, on one hand, much more reliance on the hunting of seals and marine mammals in the outer fjords to supplement their diet because they don't have enough fodder to feed the sheep. And in terms of the breeding of sheep, they decrease the breeding of sheep and they increase the breeding of goats. Well, obviously the goat is better adapted to, you know, to the, um, to that kind of Arctic environment. The, it eats shrubbery. It's okay in areas. It doesn't necessarily need as much fodder than, than, you know, obviously sheep do, but it also must've impacted their, you know, obviously the amount of wool they had. And I, and that's why I think one of the reasons why, in fact, they don't, pick up on the idea of Vothmal and using Vothmal because they, they don't have enough wool to do it. They have enough wool to cater to their needs and maybe not even that. There's an insane amount of recycling of cloth going on in Norse Greenland as well. There's evidence that they also integrated some sheep's, uh, it's not sheep, sorry, goat hair into there, which is much coarser as well, more scratchy. Um, what they find is that their main, if you want their currency, was walrus ivory, walrus pelts, you know, wild animal fur um, and goat skins that they were sending the goat skins back to Norway for shoemaking. Um, and so hence the increase also in, in goats as well. Um, so I would say, you know, th- these are decisions that were probably taken as a community, but you know, the women in dealing with clothing, one thing that I, I imagine that is that they, they must've used more furs as well in, in parts of their clothing, a little bit like the Inuit. The only problem with that is it doesn't preserve. It doesn't preserve anywhere as well as the wool, um, and the the leather tends to disintegrate. So it's very hard to determine. Except the textiles that I've looked at in Greenland, some of them do have like caribou hair shoved, you know, through the fibers. So you can tell that they were in contact with furs, and they must have added elements of fur to their clothing to supplement the lack of wool, basically. Um, Finally. As we enter the early modern period, the Danish trade monopoly transforms women's roles in textile production, you write. In what ways? So that that's a, such a that was such an eye opener that whole period. I was, you know, which is kind of the fun part I think of looking at such a huge time span and, and looking at how society changed because I was actually able to see how how it impacted women's lives as well. On one hand, they have this hugely central role in the medieval period of making money, and I'm talking about Iceland here. Um, at this point, obviously Greenland doesn't exist anymore. Um, but 
1603, you have the Danish trade monopoly where they basically take over, in a sense, the islands of the North Atlantic. And one of, I mean, they do a lot of different things. They sort of try to modernize uh, the North Atlantic islands. Now, don't forget, until this point, for 800 years, the women have been weaving on warp-weighted looms and drop spindles. So they're using very archaic technologies. They're using a Neolithic loom. Um which works fine, actually, I have to say. But anyways, <laughs> they're still using, you know, very old looms. And it is in their hands. It's done on individual farms. There's nothing, you know, mass produced about this. So when the Danes come in, um, they decide to, the king of Denmark sees that there's profit to be made from the wool. There's so much wool in this island. Um, and they did the same thing in the Faroe Islands. Um, that they decide to not only take over the breeding of sheep, so they try to perfect the breed, to make a sheep that produces a softer fleece, but they also decide that it's time to abolish the warp-weighted loom and this farm, this business of weaving at home has got to stop. So what they do is they, is they start introducing the flat treadle loom, which is the loom that was in use in Europe since the 1300s, um, and they introduce the spinning wheel. But what they also do is they take all the spinning and the weaving out of the hands of women. Well, not so much the spinning, but they take all the textile production out of the hands of women. And they set up centralized workshop. There's one that's set up in Reykjavik, and there's, I think, a couple of others in the countryside where they have now all these looms set up. It's men who are weaving. So they take the, the Icelandic men and they train them in Denmark and then bring them back to work in the workshops. They have got areas for dyeing. They've got areas for fulling, which is that technique, that surface technique that they do on the wool. And all of a sudden, women are like, and I, I thought to myself, well, wow. I wonder how they felt about that, you know? So I suppose you could say, whoa, they might have thought this was the best thing ever, you know? Like, I don't have to do this work anymore. Incredible. Or they could have said, wait a minute. And here, I think it depends. And when I've asked people in Iceland, like, nobody had really thought about this. I thought, is there, are there any letters of people, like, protesting it or women complaining about the, their loss of, you know, a loss of something, of power or something or other? Um couldn't find anything out really about it, except I imagine that there was some protest. I do certainly think there was some protest. Um, what they did do is what they did in Europe is they put the women to spinning. So they encouraged them to spin for these workshops. Now the workshop, uh, the, the famous one in Reykjavik, there was only one, it's not really particularly all that huge, uh, was run by a guy called Skuli Magnusson. And um, it didn't last very long. It only lasted 40, year, 40 years and then burnt to the ground. But in the process of trying to abolish the, the looms, they actually did succeed in <clears throat> stripping the country of the warp-weighted looms so that, you know, by the mid-1800s, nobody remembered how to even warp this thing at all. So it's a pretty significant change, you know, um, I think, in, in society. And um, what I did is that, you know, I wanted, I had heard that there were, they were also making them knit a lot. And there was a lot of knitting going on both in Iceland and in the Faroe Islands. And there are complaints by the Danish authorities that the Faroese and the Icelanders are not knitting properly because stockings were very fashionable at the time. And the stockings are poorly knit. <clears throat> and they found that, you know, there's, they're intentionally screwing up their knitting, basically. And if that isn't resistance, I don't know what it is, you know. Um, and another thing, so I started to look at the uh, material. I was working on a very big site on the Bishopric of Iceland, which is a site of Skullholt, which is sort of in the south of the country. And I was looking, Skullholtz, like I said, is the bishopric. So the bishop lived there uh, of all of Iceland, and he had a school there. 
And in the school, they had boys that would come from all over Iceland to learn how to become priests. And we're talking about, you know, 16, 1700s, more or less. So I was asked to look at the, that collection there and, and looking at the textiles from Skullholtz. And one of the things in the early modern period is that the textiles that come in, it, the, the textiles collections become bigger and bigger as you move with time in Iceland. And you also find that you're not only dealing with, um, you know, homespun cloth, but you're also suddenly dealing with this cloth, which is clearly made with Icelandic wool, but has been made in the workshops, sent back to Norway, uh, sorry, to Norway, to Denmark for verification and inspection, and then sent back to Iceland for, for resale, which looks, this cloth looks very much like the imports. And then you've got a whole bunch of imports coming in. So trying to tease through these collections is insane. And, um, but what I did find at Skalholt is that the majority of the textiles were actually homespun cloth, like the old stuff. So what is that telling you? That's telling you that basically the boys who are coming from all over Iceland still had women in their farms who were weaving on the warp-weighted loom and were making the traditional vodmal or the traditional homespun cloth and sending them to uh, Skalholt. And, and they were not actually consuming all these wonderful new things. And I, you know, I was, I was talking to the site director. And I said, you know, th this, is, this is like a form of resistance in a way. This is a way of, you know, we're not necessarily going to take over and, and, and start, you know, consuming these imported cloth. Because they were trying also very hard to get people to consume more and more modern textiles and imported textiles. And people are clearly continuing to weave the traditional homespun cloth and sending the boys to school in the homespun cloth um, regardless of, and it happened also to fit within, um, within also the, the ideals there, Lutheran ideals and, and dress codes and so on and sumptuary laws. There was actually one of the bishops of Skalholt was, um, absolutely opposed to imported cloth. And he said, the Icelanders have to wear homespun because this is their cloth and this demonstrates piety and, and we have to continue. So you have these kind of within the church, like reacting a little bit to the Danish colonial authorities at the same time. So you do definitely do have resistance happening um, within Iceland. Michelle, thanks so much for speaking with us today about the Valkyries Loom, recently published by the University Press of Florida. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for interviewing. <laughs>